Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael, and our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill. All right. Well, welcome. And uh, today we're going to talk about Chile, which is a place I hope to visit um, next year. I haven't officially made the plans, but I may have mentioned in previous podcasts that I'm going to Antarctica and it seems like a logical place to stop is Santiago, Chile, uh, to get down to the very tip. Chile is a lean and mean country. I just put lean and mean because they rhyme. Uh, it's not mean as far as I know. But uh, <laughs> at, at the very bottom of Chile is the tip of South America. And then we'll be taking a little puddle jumper to do our Antarctica business down there. So they they also have like crazy different weather from Santiago to Punta Arenas is where I uh, we went when we went to Patagonia. Yes. And so the weather because it's so long is drastically different. Oh yeah, I I can't I can imagine because it is it covers darn near probably three quarter two thirds to three quarters of the continent is uh, Chile covers. So yeah, I can imagine it does go to to those extremes. So yes, uh, Punta Arenas is where we are taking off. That is where we'll be going from Santiago. So Chile had some civil unrest here. So you may have heard in the uh, papers that income inequality has been a big deal and people are rioting in the streets like they have been in other places. And this kind of caught me off guard because uh, Chile is ranking 13th, tied with three other countries, Denmark, Estonia, in the economic freedom rankings. And so I was like, huh, well, I, I've heard stories um, since they've been relatively free that they're one of the higher income countries. And so, but of course, that doesn't stop rioting. As we know, Occupy Wall Street happened here in the United States. And and so this whole idea of income inequality, while sometimes might be a statistical artifact of sorts and its implications on real world data, if people are riding in the streets, it's real to them. And that, and that matters, right? We care about that type of thing. And so Jacob uh, and I started brainstorming on some ideas and thought, what is, is it really, what is the income inequality is it a story like I heard in some news media where, you know, there was a previous dictator back in the 90s and then Milton Friedman came along and, and helped uh, liberalize Chile and, and got all this economic freedom stuff. And now the rich are getting richer. So that maybe the reason why there's higher income is because there's just a few cronies getting richer, which is possible. You know, we can have increasing GDP and some of that concentrating to the rich and maybe the uh, the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer, you know, that whole, that whole story. So we really didn't know the details. And so we started investigating and Jacob put a pen to pencil and wrote a really nice blog that you all should check out. And so Jacob, I'll turn it over to you to kind of take, take some details from there and talk about your blog post. Uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely hit on um, most of it. So all we really did was 
we kind of discuss the, you know, the, the concept of what economic freedom is and how that relates to income inequality. And a lot of the well, research... Let, let, let's not even go, let's not assume that the listeners know what economic freedom is. So um, I'm going to put you to a test on the spot here. Give me, give me some of the areas. Uh, there's five areas, right? Yep, so size of government. Okay, so size of government. And that is uh, how much government spending is as a fraction of overall spending, if you will, if we look at gross domestic product. So does the government sector play... 15% of a role or 20% a role or 50% a role around the world, depending on how much the government has controlled resources like we see in socialism, um, then that number varies from country to country. So that's one area, absolutely. And then also taxes play into that too, uh, what the tax rates are like. And usually more spending means more taxes because you've got more spending to cover short of the government just going out and borrowing a bunch of money, which a lot of them do also. So that's another side mm -hmm. sidebar to that. But that's uh, one area. All right, good. Uh, legal systems, size of government, sound money, and did I say property rights yet? Uh, it's kind of I in think there, that's five, isn't it? And regulation is... The, right, duh, yeah. duh, of course. And, and freedom to trade internationally. Okay, yeah. Isn't that like access to markets? Yeah, international access to markets. international markets. Yeah. So yeah, do, if, if we have a country that's building up tariffs, uh, they're going to score lower than countries who have less barriers. Uh, sound money means do, do people, the average Joe out there, have access to money that doesn't have crazy inflation associated with it, which is primarily driven by the activities of the central bank or whoever controls the money supply. So in the United States, we've been pretty responsible uh, with a 2% inflation target over the, at least since uh, the late 70s when we weren't so responsible. So we've had bouts of issues here in the United States as well. So access to sound money, how do they score uh, on that? Uh, the amount of regulations, labor market regulations, uh, is another area. And then the legal system in courts really picks up how corrupt um, the government is in terms of if you can, you know, pass a bribe off to a judge and get some easy treatment or otherwise. Um, they look at external sources of survey data and other things on what people in that country are thinking. So all of this data is compiled from all of these various areas and each of the five areas gets equal weight, and then they average the score in each of those five areas, and out pops a single number. And Chile's uh, single number was a 7.89, and the United States, just for comparison, is an 8.19. Those aren't too far off statistically. So usually in the Economic Freedom Index, you look at the quartiles, so if we take the 162 countries that, are, that we have data on and break them into 25%, you know, all those countries in the top 25% are deemed you know, relatively free when comparing them to other countries. And then we can analyze some of these results. So that's a little quick little snapshot review. I know we've said it in previous podcasts, but I think it's always a good reminder. Uh, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. So... I think instead of capitalism, I, I don't know, where, where did I read this? I should try to give credit to this, but uh, somebody said, you know, maybe we shouldn't use the word capitalism and maybe it would be better to say, let's talk about economic freedom. So the more free a country is, the more capitalistic it is in terms of putting things in private hands. And 
what might be surprising to some people is Denmark is 13th. And so Bernie Sanders might talk about uh, the Netherlands as our socialist brothers. Uh, why can't the United States look like Denmark or some other places where they've got free health care and free college education? Well, what's missing there is that they've actually got an underlying market system that scores higher than the United States in some of these other areas. And so the idea of economic freedom and um, capitalism, if you will, is uh, much more complex than simply looking, well, do they have free health care or do they not? In fact, uh, young Jacob, you brought up Hong Kong. Uh, somebody just told me that Hong Kong has free health care, and Hong Kong has been number one on the economic freedom list for many, many years. And so uh, they have uh, health care. Uh, pretty surprising. Uh, it was surprising to me, too, and that, honestly, I didn't actually verify that, so... Hopefully that's an unverified yeah. <laughs> uh, thing that I heard from uh, someplace that I can't even remember. But I guess that's the luxury of running your own podcast. You can <laughs> sometimes run your mouth without perfectly citing everything like we have to do in scholarly journals. So, Okay, so Jacob, uh, kind of ride from there now with some yeah. of the stuff relating it to our relatively free Chile. So the after I kind of get into what economic freedom is, I try to look at the, the impact of economic freedom on income inequality. So how unevenly or evenly distributed wealth is throughout the, the population of a country. And um, the paper I cite, it's Berg and Nielsen. And basically, it's hard to determine the, the relationship, but it's, it definitely can go in the, the, the opposite direction of what you would think or what yeah. you might expect. And as... The more free a country is, the more um, the more unequal the distribution is of the wealth. Um, so that's kind of what I explained. But that's not always the case either. No, right? no. I, I can't remember. Is that paper or a different paper? Mm -hmm. That if you start to, or I, I remember looking at even just South America, and so you might have countries that the gap actually narrows in some mm -hmm. cases, and sometimes it widens. Well, you have to look at also too, like it, absent of economic freedom, if the gap is getting close to like, why is that? Because I mean, you can you can achieve that through like a high marginal tax rate, yeah, which isn't anything that's actually benefiting anyone or creating any wealth, but it's making wealth more equal by just taking that money. Yeah, and uh, some studies don't take into account the transfer payments. It's like pre-transfer payment, hmm. like they don't take into account how much money, and then right. So the gap dramatically closes once you've taken into account the transfers that are there. So again, it's one of those issues that gets kind of confusing. Um, it's certainly not, how should I say, hard science that, oh boy, well, it's a, it's a trade-off. If, if you allow capitalism, yes, you're going to get a higher GDP and it might look good GDP per person, but you're going to have this mm -hmm. income inequality that's going to be huge. And, and that's, that's not mm -hmm. the case from a number of studies. Well, that, in the context, that, sorry, in the context of Chile, even, I mean, they've gotten significantly more free in the last three decades and they've had a pretty pro market, uh, approach, especially as far as international trade. Right. As far as I know. And I mean, um, cause I talk about the, the Gini coefficient, which is a measure, statistical measure of the distribution of wealth. And so it's in 19, 90 they were 57.2 and now in 2017 they're all the way down to 46.6 which well, that's a pretty sizable reduction right so the higher the number if it if it approaches one one person has, has all the all of the income mm -hmm. and zero would be perfect um equality everybody has equal amounts and so the world's somewhere in between and 
Yeah, so that's what's kind of striking is that Chile happens to be one of those examples <laughs> where income inequality has actually gone down during this period of prosperity over the last 30 years. Well, and something that I was just reading that was pretty interesting before this is it was an article from Reuters, and they were talking about how, um, like, what protesters have been talking about in these interviews. Yeah. And one of the biggest things was um, they, they have a problem with, like, privatization of a lot of things that are in Chile. Like, they talk about the privatization of the healthcare system, the privatization of transportation, and, um, oh, the utility system in schools. Okay. Which is weird to me because they're complaining, like, like their, their complaint is the privatization, but I think that's probably a better solution than the alternative. Right. Because, I, I mean, just the, expanding the role of government to be able to do that, I mean, by definition, has to be coercive. And I think it would lead to much more unequal outcomes mm -hmm. because it'd be so much harder to allocate these resources versus in a private market system where the best person who can provide it is going to be the one who can or is going to be rewarded for doing so. Right. So which is why income is going to be so un, unequally dispersed because the best per producers are going to be very rich compared to the consumers. Yeah. So we shift the decision making into government. Government plays kissy face with their golfing buddies, and then the golfing buddies are the ones getting the allocations. And so that's somewhat in a in a little tongue in cheek way of of thinking about public choice economics. Mm, and so, that's what's interesting is Chile's, like, uh, corruption, like, that's one of the biggest things in South America that bogs them all down. That bogs so them all down, yeah, exactly. So but that's exact, what they want to increase is right, the level of government. Right, and so is it an uninformed position? Is it cultural? I mean, I, I think it's hard to not argue that in the South American countries that it's not somewhat cultural, mm -hmm. right? Because that that's where we see that that there's more of a kind of a bigger government approach, whether you look up to Venezuela or, you know, any, any of the, mm -hmm. the countries, uh, Argentina, Brazil, they tend to have this idea that government can bring solutions. Right. The right mix of bureaucrats going to be the ones to kind of lift you up. Despite the fact that they have generation after generation of corrupt rulers that have mm -hmm. not delivered what they said. If we go back to Chavez or, other ones that promise, the, what's, how promise do you say all the goodies. President? How do you say his name now? Uh, uh, Maduro. Of Chile? Oh, Chile? Uh, no, no, Maduro is the Venezuela. Oh, you're going to have to help me on that. But It's Piñera, Sebastian yeah, yeah, yeah. Piñera. So, exactly right. So why, why aren't these folks, the maybe the average Joe on the street, embracing the notion of privatization? And I, I think a lot of that goes back to Hayek and... Mm -hmm. It's natural, it's human nature for us to look to a authority figure or somebody else that's smarter than me or knows more than me to give us direction and bring order to my life. Mm -hmm. So if I'm in a tough spot, then somebody out there, since I'm not in control of what seems to be my life in whatever way, shape, or form that is, that... A government figure there's got to be something else right well and so since the the fraser institute's been keeping records or as far as you can go back chile's size of government's been incredibly small and so i wonder if yeah they think that this lack of government is why they're so not they're not where they think they should be as a society whereas right. they're significantly better than those who are around them right. and it, is it because of that lack of you know a strong government yeah yeah so getting that getting that idea of 
spontaneous order that things might be better dispersed into the brains of a bunch of the populace and allow them to figure out what's best for themselves will actually be the best public service that could be done. Kind of tie back. And that's to exactly why Smith the income and, is so. Yeah. Well, and, and but then so yeah. Then I I think this looks like a good place to break. So what's somewhat surprising is then the further research that we did, finding out about the neighboring countries and it kind of seems to be uh, who do we compare it to? So. We'll try to weave in a little uh, faith component, too, on uh, how much faith is down in Chile. They, is this a, a Catholic nation? Is it uh, mostly secular? We'll pick up there in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Welcome back. So we're going to continue on with the talk about Chile, and we did a little Google searching and found out um, a little bit about the religious composition anyway, according to uh, one site. Jacob, what did you find? This site here, uh, Adventure Life, says that the majority of Chileans are Roman Catholic, about 55 to 60 percent, and around 15 percent are Christian Protestant, making it one of the nations in Latin America with the greatest Protestant influence. Around, Protestant. around 25% of Chileans are religiously non-affiliated or state that religion is not important in their lives. Again, one of the highest percentages in Latin America. Huh. Okay, so yeah, we have a growing non-group in the United States. So uh, proportionately, what's interesting is I think in the United States, around 70-some percent, if I remember, consider themselves to be Christian you know, whatever flavor that looks like or that, you know, some bag, you know, they might not even be able to, they go to Christmas and Easter, whatever. But, you know, this is kind of self-reported, but claim to be a Christian, which then leaves, you know, uh, a small fraction for the other world religions. But I think the non-affiliated type stuff, I suspect would be around 25% here in the United States as well. So, yeah. so that's kind of interesting that uh, it's similar maybe to what we're seeing down there. Um, although, of course, here, the Roman Catholic representation would be a lot less. And so over the years, I think all of South America, the 
Jesuits of the Catholic Church kind of went in and brought Christianity to uh, South America. And so that's why South America continues to persist with a very high Roman Catholic rate. But as uh, Jacob said, uh, I couldn't help but think about the Protestant work ethic. So Gene Veith, uh, no, I'm sorry, Max Faber. Uh, Gene Veith is a different uh, writer. Uh, Max Faber uh, wrote kind of a famous piece where he thought a lot of what the United States is based on and kind of some of the good stuff that we have in terms of America is uh, owed to the Protestant work ethic. So we had our pilgrims come over, and they're kind of savers, and they want to build and save into the next thing, and they had a good work ethic. And ultimately, those were some of the important foundational elements that led to our market system as we know it today and the income growth that uh, was unprecedented in the world from our little constitution kicking off in 1776. It actually started before that with our Christian roots and the Protestant work ethic. So I wonder, um, with most the majority of the nation being Catholic and historically being very Catholic, I wonder if that kind of feeds into this uh, mentality for more government, right? To kind of submit to yeah. a higher... And as a Catholic, like, I almost feel bad saying that, you know, but yeah. like, like this... Uh, no, okay, but the call for, you know, a higher <laughs> a higher power being the government here, kind of overseeing and bringing the no, social that, change they desire. I think that's an interesting one, Jacob, and I, I tend to agree. I mean, let's face it, that that is the way the Catholic faith... That's part of what the Protestants... That's what Martin Luther protested to some degree was... You can go straight to Jesus with your talks. You don't have to use the priest as an interface. And so um, my wife, with her work in Guatemala, it is kind of similar. So it's a Lutheran-based organization, but kind of non-denominational in a sense. But uh, with her group, they go into these villages. And, and Dana, my wife, has given these stories, these testimonies of the women that when they start doing Bible studies they kind of break down and cry and they say, I didn't know I could just talk to God. So I think you might be onto something, Jacob. Maybe there's another paper in there somewhere with does the religion where, where we have maybe more Catholic dominated areas and uh, to the extent that the Catholic Church has a hierarchy that's pretty well established with the Pope being the top Big dog. Big on submitting to authority. Yeah. yeah, the top dog, and then you work down to the bishops and the archbishops, and, and then eventually down to the local priests. Um, but it has always traditionally been a person in control is the interface between you and God. Now, I'm, I'm willing to take on some some mail and some criticisms on that if I'm not giving uh, the Catholic Church a fair shake. Uh I was raised Catholic and baptized a Catholic, and, and so um, I, I, have a, I know a little bit of See, things. I, I think but... it's different. It's the question of legitimate authority, whereas I don't think the government has legitimate authority. Over Absolutely, me. yeah. No, I think it's just I think that would be the distinction for yeah, me at least. No, it, it's certainly just a, a cultural thing. Like, mm -hmm. maybe it's natural, hey, if I'm talking about a God thing, I turn to the priest. Mm -hmm. If I'm talking about an economic thing, I need to turn to a government leader. Well, in so right? many of those the, countries, the their leaders were their gods, right? I mean, so a lot of those Latin and South American countries. So. Well, you mean way back when? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where we didn't when their emperors were literally like I mean, gods. even in, in Europe, kings and queens yeah, were ordained enough, by yeah. God. I mean, yeah, that's that's been a 
pretty standard. A standard thing historically, but here more recently in the last, recently being the last 500 years or something, it's been more of the Christian influence of, of that. And uh, not and 500 years, that goes back to Martin Luther breaking the chain with Protestantism, mm -hmm. taking a different direction. So anyway, I think those are some interesting points. Maybe we got some stuff uh, to play with for future blogs or maybe some future podcasts. That, that's what's fun about doing this stuff. So um, to continue on with the, with the chili data a little bit, I said, Jacob, let's, let's kind of run with this idea of maybe people don't understand that they should look to how their neighbors are doing compared to them rather than maybe the rich person in their mm -hmm. country. That's easier said than done. Again, people are doing what people do, and that's just natural to look at the rich person and, oh, this system's not working, I'm poor, they're rich, and I think that they're rich because I'm poor and they took, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, some sort of oppression. Um, the story is, is always the same historically, country after country, <laughs> and, and failing to recognize the win-win the situation at capitalism. So that's where we turn to the data. That's what was kind of exciting about this, this blog post that Jacob uh, uh, wrote and, and uh, ran with. So um, Jacob, explain, what, what did the, let's start with the neighboring countries. Uh, what did you find? Yeah, so, I mean, it all started with the data from the World Bank that gave the, the percentage of the income that the bottom 10% of a, the population holds. Yeah, before you do that, though, let's talk about income per person in oh, okay. uh, yeah, the, the, the average countries. So we looked at Bolivia, Argentina, and Peru. These are all the bordering countries of Chile. So Peru's to the north. Uh, Bolivia's uh, kind of northeast, and Argentina runs right along the southern tip uh, with Chile. And uh, those countries, what did you come up with with data on income per person? Yeah, so it started out with the, the average wage per month for earners. And so Chile has 977 being the highest average. Peru, um, or no, Argentina was second with 554 per month. Peru was third with 503. And Bolivia, they earned about a meager 272 a month. And those are in U.S. dollars, purchasing power parity adjusted. Right. And so so even, when we give those dollars, purchasing power parity, blah, 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 all that stuff means that if I take, if, if a McDonald's cheeseburger is a buck, a person in Chile can take their money and their currency and buy 977 cheeseburgers. Whereas a person in Argentina gets 554 cheeseburgers. That's the way we want to think about these dollars is that it's not just that they're rich, but in terms of the material things you can buy, economists have adjusted for all of that through these techniques of purchasing power parity and then exchange rates and, and some other uh, statistical manipulations so that we can really be considering apples and apples because if you're poor and you're really making, you know, $977 a month, that person can buy twice as much food as the person in their neighboring mm -hmm. country in Argentina. That, that's pretty powerful. Now, and then to the north, it was 503 hamburgers, and in Bolivia, that was in Peru, and then in Bolivia, it's 272. Now, that doesn't solve our problem. That was just one little thing because if 
the income of the country is all owned by a single person or a few rich people mm -hmm. and everybody else is, has a dollar a day or whatever, you know, extreme poverty, it's possible that on average, yeah, we got Bill Gates who's <laughs> making $40 million a year or something and everybody else is making a dollar a day. Um, so anyway, that statistic in and of itself could be misleading and they might rightfully be protesting in the streets. So that's where we took this a little step further. So Jacob, explain now the, this kind of 10% business that you chipped away at. Right. So using data from World Bank, we found the the income share for the lowest 10% of the population. Okay. And so what was cool is Chile, they even had the highest share of income for the bottom 10%. Even though that doesn't really tell you anything in and of itself, but they right. have... but but it's important. So mm -hmm. um, the statistic that we're looking at is one point nine percent is the share of national income that the poorest ten percent of the population gets, right? And so that that might be kind of discouraging in a sense, right? One point nine percent is like, wow, we got ten percent of the population that's only getting that. Meanwhile, you know, what's the top 10% getting? And that's where we start to get into income inequality issues. Um, before we go much further, I don't know if we, we said it enough. Well, maybe we did. But the, the income inequality as measured by the Gini coefficient, that was the number Jacob cited earlier going from 57, was it, to 46. So that income inequality as measured by that kind of normal measure that a lot of people look to uh, has actually shrank. So income inequality has shrank this whole time, remember. And now we're looking at, well, how much money do they actually have? Okay, so we had uh, Argentina at 1.8%, Peru at 1.2%, Bolivia at 1.7%. All right, so then where do you take it from there, Jacob? So kind of how I worked through it was I took the that, that number for the bottom 10%. So in Chile's, the Chile example, it was one9 and I multiplied that by the total GDP that the country earns in a year. Which is the income for the country, mm -hmm. right? and for then, everybody, all the Bill Gateses and everybody else. So that ends up uh, being around, uh, what is it, $5.2 there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then I took the total population and found 10% of that. So 10% of the population to be, uh, I guess, a proxy for the poorest 10%. So there's 1.8 million people that are earning this 1.9% mm -hmm. of the income, essentially. And so then uh, you can boil that to income per person, right? Yep. And so the Chile, they have to make about $2,857.09. All right. So that's 2,857 hamburgers for the poorest 10% of the population. The people that in my opinion, we got to keep our eye on the bottom 10, the bottom 20. So in terms of the way I look at things, I don't really care about income inequality per se, but what's happening to the poorest of the poor? Like, well, how are they faring? So, so they've got 2,857 cheeseburgers um, in Chile. Meanwhile, in Argentina next door, where I believe there's greater income equality, if I remember right, a lower inequality score, but they are at 2,552 hamburgers. So get this, folks. If, we, if the Chilean poor people compare themselves to the poor people in their neighboring states, they are better off. 
Man, Argentina does have a lower Gini coefficient. They're like 41, 42. Okay. So they're more equal, but yeah. The they are more equal, they're less. more equally poor, right? Yeah. And, and so that, that's been the story of history is that you go back 2,000 years ago, there was lots of income equality. We were all equally just skating by, right? We were all equally poor. And so if we can do things with policies and institutions in a country, then maybe we can help raise the poor. We might raise the rich too, but let's keep our eye on the poor. Now, we go to Peru, and it's 1,140. So 1,140 hamburgers versus 2,800 hamburgers. And Bolivia was pathetic at 402 hamburgers. So check that out, folks. In Chile, their poorest of poor, with the bottom 10%, which is 1.8 million people, they are consuming five times more hamburgers relative to the Bolivians. And across the board, all of their neighbors, they're better off. So uh, kind of the point with the exercise is, do they have the right to still be ticked off? Of course they do, right? But are they maybe missing the boat? I would argue, yeah. Uh, I, I think they, income inequalities actually shrank. I think if they turn to bigger government intervention, they're going to start to head the way of these other countries, which is going to make the, the flip side is I would tend to see them making them the poor worse off more closer to their neighbors, Argentina, Peru, and Bolivia. So why would we want to do that? So that's kind of the piece that, uh, Jacob pulled together, and, and I really like what he wrote. I really encourage you to go to our blog post at GordonInstitute.org, and you can read the article because uh, Jacob uh, wrote a lot of good stuff in there um, outside of what we mentioned in this podcast. Uh, so I think uh, he did a nice job with it, and it's, it's a worthwhile read. And we're going to try to put it out to some popular media sources. So who knows? Maybe you'll see it in the Wall Street Journal or at least cited <laughs> Uh, there and uh, you know the BBC or something. We're gonna we're gonna try to seek out some other things. So so all right. Well, I think we're getting close. Uh, Jason, Jacob, any other last words? Jacob, Michael, with your piece. Uh, how did how did you feel about doing it? Like as you were working on it, I learned a lot, um, especially because the first draft didn't include the thing about the poorest ten percent. So um, that that definitely was the biggest difference. Okay. I mean, just getting to see see in actual dollar terms how much better off that those people really are. Yeah, I think it's a powerful thing. I think it's something we could do with, with other countries, too. Part of what the Fraser, the Fraser Report does look at the bottom 10%. That's what kind of got me going on some things. Mm-hmm. But they didn't do it the way we did it here on a country-by-country country basis. But that's what's awesome about the Economic Freedom Index report is that it gives researchers the opportunities to take this data. They have the full data set. It's all on Excel spreadsheet. You can take it and, and kind of run with it to look for things. Jason, you had something to, to add? Oh, you are muted. Or we just can't hear you. Or maybe I can't hear you. Okay, well, unfortunately, you might have to do some heavier editing, or you can just leave fun little bloopers like this in. I... <laughs> 
Uh, I think we'll wrap there. And uh, on behalf of the Gordon Institute, we appreciate you all all uh, listening. And if you feel so inclined and like what you hear, tell your friends. And one way to tell them is to give us a five-star review. And that helps us uh, rise in the ranks. So we appreciate that. Uh, we do have a little donate button at the Gordon Institute uh, website. And encourage you to do that if you want to continue to help support the things that we do got student programs that we do on campus and away from campus and we certainly have a lot of fun around here. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. <laughs>